We'll be looking at verses 11 through 32, parable of the prodigal son. And for the last few weeks, we've uh, been in a sermon series we're calling Love Walked Among Us, uh, which is inspired by a book uh, by Paul Miller. You can pick up a book on your way out uh, that we're looking at kind of as a church together, looking at kind of how Christ loved in through his life and through his ministry. And one of the big goals of our, of our sermon series is that we would grow in our experience of the love of Christ so that we might also grow in how we embody the love of Christ. So the more we grow in our experience of the love of Christ, the more we're able to em- grow in the embodiment of that. And one of the principles we've been, kind of the foundational principles we've been operating on is this, is how you view God is going to be equivocal, is going to equal to uh, how you treat other people. How you, view, how you view God. If you view God as somebody who is angry or condemning, that's going to affect how you treat other people. If you view God as somebody who's compassionate, then that's going to affect how you treat other people. Today I kind of want to add another principle in, it's very related, another foundational principle to this sermon series, is how you believe God views you, how you think God sees you, is going to affect the way how you see yourself. How you think and what you believe, how God views you, is going to affect the way that you view yourself. And we're going to look at this, uh, in order to kind of explore that together, we're going to be looking at the uh, parable of the prodigal son, which is in Luke 15. And just to give you just a brief context, uh, this is one of the more popular parables in the Gospels, but just as a reminder, what's been happening is that the Pharisees have come and started to grumble about Jesus and his ministry. They're saying, this man is associating himself with sinners and tax, co- tax collectors. And they began, com- they began complaining about that. And this is what, when Jesus responds with his series of three parables. His first parable, the parable of the lost coin. And then the second parable, the parable of the lost sheep. You know, those familiar parables where the, the, the sheep, 99 sheep, are, uh, but there's one who goes lost, and the, they rejoice when that one sheep is found. And so here we get to uh, the parable of the, law, of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. Let's see what Jesus is trying to communicate to his audience and to us. So you can follow along with me, parable of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while his, he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put on a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what, this, what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed a fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that I have, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. It's to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you, your word is living and active. I pray that as we hear your word, and ex- that we would actually experience you in your word, that we would hear your voice, that we would see you. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts that turn to you and receive you by faith. May we know the love that you have for us. We pray that your word will be the power of salvation for all who believe. Amen. What is my dad going to do? What is he going to say to me when I get home? This is a question I had uh, when I was in ninth grade. Let me tell you why that question is. Maybe you've had that question before. Maybe you can imagine some of your own past experiences. When I was in ninth grade, I got caught cheating on an English test. And I, you know, to be, to be fair, I was, I did cheat, but I had taken the whole test, and I was checking one of my answers when I, I looked at one of my neighbor's papers, and my English teacher saw me right then and there checking an answer that I had and caught me cheating. It was at the very end of class. She said, David, bring your test up here. I want you to turn it in, and we'll talk after school. I said, okay. So immediately after school, I ran over to Ms. Kavanaugh's room, and I said, please don't call my dad. Please don't call my dad. She said, it's too late. I already called him. And I said, what? <laughs> no. So when I got home, I, luckily, when I got home, my dad had not gotten home from work yet. But I'm imagining this question, what is my dad going to say? What is he going to do? Because I've had other incidents that I can relate to uh, of when I've gotten in trouble and, you know, scenarios of where my dad 
uh, said certain things and did certain things. And so I was trying to figure out how to, what that conversation was going to be like. But in that moment, like, that's the, that's the driving question, I think, of, of a lot of our experience with, with God, is what is, how does God view me? Like, in my, in my moment when I was caught, in my moment when, when I was in my darkest or darkest moment of, of even, whether it's committing a sin or whatnot, how does God view me? How does God see me? Maybe you can think of an event in your own life where you've asked that question. Maybe you ask that question even now. How does God see you? In your best or in your worst moment, how does he view you? And that's what I think this parable, we can explore together. And so I want to dive in and kind of explore that question with you and how Jesus gives us this picture of how God views us. Let's do that together. Let's look immediately here. Uh, there's a couple things that what I want us to walk away with. And this first thing is what we learned about compassion, what we learned about the, the compassion of Christ. And there's two points here in the sermon, that compassion grieves death and compassion rejoices in new life. That's what kind of what I want to, the outline I want to follow here. So first of all, we kind of see how the, the, what we see about compassion, the character of compassion in the ministry of Christ, it grieves death. So let's see here, what, we, what, do, we, what do I mean by that? What is, what is the verse, verses 11 through 16? We see this, if you go back, I'm not going to finish, I'm not going to read all this again, but if you go back, I'm going to camp out here in verses 11 through 16, and here's what happens in verses 11 through 16. The big idea is the younger son leaves, right? He leaves the father's house. We see all these details about how he leaves. And whenever, you know, I grew up in the church, and maybe many of you grew up in the church, and, and whenever I hear the story of the prodigal son, think of this, this word prodigal, right? What's the, what does that word mean? It means reckless living. We see that, like the prodigal son leaves his home, goes out and is wayward and lives a reckless life, completely abusing and using all the resources he has. And for the longest time, kind of, I thought about this in, as like an observer of the story, as somebody kind of observing this, because I had a lot of family and friends who kind of lived like this. Like maybe you have family and friends, the traditional kind of understanding of kind of the prodigal person who kind of lives a reckless life. Maybe this is you. Maybe you have lived a reckless life. Maybe you've, you've kind of done that in the more traditional way. But I was somebody kind of who observed a lot of my family and friends doing this kind of in the traditional way. I'll give you one example. I had a friend of mine who was kicked out of the house at 16 years old because he was abusing drugs and got to the point where he had kind of used up all the resources that he had been given, was kicked out of the house and continued using and abusing drugs until finally, in his 20s, he got arrested but arrested for a big, big offense in regards to drugs. So big that he had to make a deal with the police in order to take down one of drug dealers so that he could get off. And then after that, he got into recovery and was able to kind of make amends with people and kind of come back to restore those relationships that he had lost years ago. Do you guys have friends like that or family like that? And I was somebody who kind of observed friends and family doing that. I had, again, not only friends, but family members who, who kind of lived some version of that story, of that prodigal 
waywardness. And, and one of the things that, you know, I want to say here is I've had family and friends who've gone through recovery, who've gone through AA, and it's been really great. You know, I think the church should kind of come alongside AA, and there's a lot of really great things. And even kind of you hear that term of like that we see here in the, the younger son of kind of hitting rock bottom. Kind of that, that person has to hit rock bottom before they can kind of turn and come back. And even like I've heard some, I've had friends and family who've experienced this who've said they, they kind of experienced a death. They kind of went through a death in order to kind of get before they went to recovery. And again, I've always kind of treated this as like I'm somebody kind of who's an observer who's just observing what is happening. But actually what Jesus is telling us in this parable is that it's not just that you're an observer watching somebody. This is all of us. We are all prodigal sons and daughters. Let me tell you why. The younger son does this. I'm going to dig into the text a little bit here. Uh, did you recognize what the younger son does? He goes and he asks for his inheritance. And there's a, uh, um, an author, Kenneth Bailey, a commentator, who actually went to the Middle East and was like, interviewed people who lived in the Middle East and was like, what would this be like if a son came to his father and asked for his inheritance. And they basically said, it would be like asking your dad to drop dead. To say, I'm done with you. You are dead to me. That's ultimately what the son is doing, is saying, I am not just taking your inheritance. You no longer exist to me. You are dead. And that, my friends, is what we have all said and done to God himself. That's the story of Scripture. That's the story of Genesis that we left our home with God and we sought life and love outside of him. Because ultimately, what God says to you and to me is in the way that he created and designed us is to say, you're my beloved child. You can experience life and love in, at home with me, but all of us, all of us have left. We have turned away from God. We've sought life and love outside of him. We've said, God, you're dead to me. I'm done with you. And maybe you haven't said those words, but you've acted like it. Whenever you seek life outside of God himself, whenever you can fill in the blank, which all of us can, right? The, the blank that we're supposed to fill in is, I am God's beloved child, period. But whenever you fill in the blank that says, I am something else other than that, I am, in this case, the younger son saying, I am what I have. I am, I want to get all this inheritance. I am what I have. That's a lie we believe, right? Maybe you believe that lie in certain ways. I am what I experience. There's all sorts of ways we can fill in that blank. Outside, when we live apart from God, I am what I fill in the blank. We are all prodigal because we have chosen to live apart from God. We've chosen to live away from him. And the crazy thing about this passage is the father doesn't implore him. He agrees. There's not, the father just says, okay. He gives him the inheritance. He agrees to it. Do you see how insane that is? Wouldn't you think that a father would say, no, stay. The father knows that he can't coerce the child, so he says, you can go. He agrees. But the Bible tells us, one of the, my favorite passages is Psalm 103. 
As a father is compassionate towards his child, so is, so is God compassionate towards us. So as far as the east is from the west, so far as he's removed our sins against us. And you know what it says about God? That he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Old Testament and the Psalms love to describe God as long-suffering. So even though that God grieves that we've broken relationship with him, because that's what God does, right? That's what it means that he's long-suffering. He grieves that we've broken relationship with him. He waits. <laughs> God is a patient God. The Psalms love to describe God as a patient God who is waiting for us. And meanwhile, as God grieves the death that we have brought upon ourselves, the Son is out living his wayward life. That We are out living our wayward life. And then we turn to verse 17 through 19 where we see the Son has left, but now the Son returns home. He finally hits rock bottom. And you kind of think like, oh, maybe he had a realization that was really grand. He just, run out, he just ran out of money. And he was hungry, really. <laughs> That's what the text says, uh, says. He was just hungry. He ran out of money. He hits rock bottom, and then he came to himself. And I think that's a good part for us to say. When, you come, when he came to himself, he realized that like, what he was going to, the way, everything that he was going to to find life outside of his father had run out. That's what, that's what it means to kind of, for you and I to kind of hit that end of ourself where we come to a point where we realize what we are chasing after cannot give us life. However you fill in that blank, I am what I have. Whatever you're kind of grabbing towards outside of God, then you realize, you come to a point where you realize that's not going to give me life anymore. That's what we see a picture here. And what does he do? What does the younger son do when he returns? He immediately goes into this, this mode of how does he begin to sort of have that internal dialogue? It's the same thing you and I do, actually. He says, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll become a hired servant. I'll earn my way back to God. How many of you, when you do something sort of wrong, you immediately either like talk bad about yourself or like, oh, man, I'm just such a bad husband, such a bad spouse, I'm such a bad friend, I'm such a bad this or bad that. Maybe we do that kind of like we, beat, we want to beat ourselves up. We want to beat ourselves up and kind of just sort of, you know, say that we are even kind of like qualitatively bad altogether. Or maybe we defend ourselves. Maybe we say, you know what, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't do it really, you know, it wasn't terrible. But e either way, our default mode is that we can try to earn our way back. We try to kind of think about the ways in which maybe even you have a broken relationship or something that kind of like sort of a breach in a relationship that you have where you kind of think about, okay, like I, I'm going to be better. I'm going to be a better spouse. I'm going to be a better family member. I'm going to be a better worker. Maybe you try to think about how you can be better. I think this is how we operate. This is how I operate so often, but this is actually not how the gospel works. <laughs> and we see this here in the passage when he returns. Well, as he returns, he finally says in verse 20 here, he, he rose and came along, or, or look at the very end of verse 21, excuse me. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
And I think one of the things that I want us to kind of draw from this part of the passage here is that so often you and I kind of want to treat even like Lent, the season of Lent, like we want to think of it like a self-improvement project. If I can just strive, if I can just be better. But that actually is not what this passage is showing us. This passage is showing us that we need to come to a point where we confess. And what do we confess? I want you to put up this quote. If you can put up the quote from, uh, from Capon here. Um, he says this about confession. Confession is not a medicine leading to a recovery. If we could recover, if we could say that beginning tomorrow or the week after, next we would be well again. Why then all would we need to, all we would need to do is apologize, not confess. We could simply say that we were sorry about the recent unpleasantness, but that, thank God, in our resilience of our better instincts, it is all over now. And we could confidently expect that no one but a real nasty would say as nay. But we never recover. We die. And this is where I want to give you really highlight. And if we live again, it is not because of the old parts of our life are jiggled back into line, but because without waiting for realignment, some wholly other life takes up residence in our death. That's the gospel. Grace does not do things tit for tat. It actually finally and fully, it acts finally and fully from the start. Do you see the difference there? When we confess, so, much, so often when I confess my sin, I'm actually operating in a kind of that default mode of like, I'm just really trying to do better. But actually, what we see a picture of here is that we actually need to come and confess, I am dead without Christ, and I need Christ to take up residence in me. Because that's the reality of our state. We have died because we've left God, and we need him in our lives to give us new life. And so that's one of the things that I, I implore you during Lent. Lent, it's not a time to strive more. It's a time to die more. Explore what that means in your life. To come back to Christ and to say this very thing is, I need you to take up residence in me and give me life because I only have life in you. Well, moving on to the second point here, compassion, not only the compassion of God, not only grieves death, but it also rejoices in new life. Wes, could you put up the picture of the painting here of, of uh, Rembrandt? You, maybe you guys have probably seen this painting before, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Have you ever seen this? Do you know where it is right now? It's in St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, which I find is very interesting. Um, I was... Uh, reading Henry Nouwen's book uh, this week, rereading it, uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son, and he talks a lot about this painting and how this painting influenced his own individual life. And this painting really is a, is a picture of what we're about to look at next, is what happens when the prodigal son returns home. How does the father respond? That's the big driving question, right? How, what is the father going to do when we come back home? What is my dad going to do with the fact that I cheated. <laughs> How is your father going to react to you? Well, let's look at verse 23-24. How does God react? How does the father react? It says, when he was a long way off, when, when the, the son was a long way off, what does that tell you about who God is? He was looking for his son to return. He was waiting. He was waiting. And you think, like, what was going on in the father's mind 
as he was waiting for his son to return. You might think, like, I'm a dad, and I have, a, I have teenagers, and I often think, this is like, I'm pacing anxiously, and for those of you who have been parents, sometimes I'm not ready to respond like this. Some of the questions you might ask is like, you might imagine the father asking, he's like, where has he been? What has he been up to? What has he been doing? Is, does he know how worried I've been about him? Those are the kind of questions you would expect. Those, you would expect him to be pacing, right? To be pacing back and forth. Is that the picture we get? It says he was a long way off. His father saw him. And again, this is like, this is right where we need to land here. This is like the, the critical part of the passage. What does God do when he sees you? He saw him and he felt compassion for him. And not does he just feel compassion for him. Not does he just say, oh, I'm glad my son. He ran after him. Which in that time, like, the dude would have been, like, his robes would have been coming up and he didn't have any underwear on. Like, he would have, it would have been, he would have been completely exposed as he was running for his son. It would have completely exposed him. He was exposed. He ran, he embraced him, and he kissed him. Friends, that's the, the picture of the gospel here. And you see, if you see, uh, see the painting here, you see the, the younger son kneeling down and the father embracing him. Romans chapter 8 says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And all, later in the chapter it says, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Anything you can imagine right now? Oh, what, but, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know my darkest moment. No. Paul says nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. There's nothing. And this is a picture of how God doesn't just wait for you. He runs out to greet you and kisses you. He loves you deeply. If you put up the Henry, Henry Nouwen quote, I'll read, this will be my last quote here. He says this, The Father sees far and wide. His seeing is an eternal seeing, a seeing that reaches out to all humanity. It is a seeing that understands the lostness of women and men of all times and places, that knows with immense compassion the suffering of those who have chosen to leave home, that cried oceans of tears as they got caught in anguish and agony. The heart of the father burns with an immense desire to bring his children home. You know, I, I shared earlier with you about when I was waiting for my dad to get home after I cheated on the test. I was kind of curious what he would say to me, what he would do. So my father walked in, my dad walked in, and we had, we had a hallway, and I, I kind of like saw him coming down the hallway, and I was like, I'm just going to go ahead and go up and greet him, and maybe I can kind of like intervene and begin to explain, hey, I, d I didn't cheat, I just... I just was checking my answer. There's a difference, right? I was kind of, that's how I was like, I was going to just, justify myself. And all my dad said to me was, I did it too. I understand. Don't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, whew, I'm off the hook. Okay. And actually, like, I remember that story because I, it was like my dad's way of showing compassion to me. He was like, I understand. I know and I'm going to show you mercy. I'm not going to punish you this time. And actually, that actually motivated me more than any of any condemnation would have. 
because I was like, wow, okay, I want to live a different life now. And actually, like, I later on stopped cheating in high school. Not because my dad told me to, because he showed me compassion. It actually led to me changing the way I live my life. And, you know, again, this is, it's not like my dad and I had a party. We were like, yay, all right, you know. We, I, but this is the picture that we get here. We get a picture that when the father shows compassion, it doesn't just stop there. He says that he actually, <laughs> he, he tells his servants in verse 22, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it. We're going to have a big party. We're going to have a huge party. We're going to celebrate Get out the wine, get out everything. We're going we're gonna to have a big party. And I think this points to the way that, even if you look through the Scriptures, that the, when we are re- reunited with Christ at the end in heaven, what's, gonna, what's it going to be? It's going to be a celebration. There's going to be a banquet table, and Christ is the host, and we're going to be eating and drinking with Christ, reunited with Him. Friends, we need, we need, sorry, Presbyterians, we need to party more. We need to learn how to party. Easter, we're going we're gonna to have a party on Easter. We're going to have a feast. And we're going we're gonna to be celebrating. We need to feast more because we have to learn how to rejoice. You're, our God has, takes joy in you. He takes joy in your salvation. Why do we not rejoice in the fact of that God rejoices in, in you? It's so freeing. All right, so that's the end of the story, right? Nope, we have another son. And it's interesting. It's actually, it's actually the same. Uh, I'm not going to spend as much time on here because actually it's the, it's the same outline because there's nothing new to report here. The, the father is still the father, and he still acts. Compassion grieves death again. <laughs> Look at verses 25 through 32. The younger son finds out what he's been in the field he comes you can read it there he he comes in he hears the music and the dancing and he is what he's angry he's angry which reveals he's he, he he's had proximity right he's he's actually been close to the father all the whole time proximity wise he's been there in the house doing the work but what does his response reveal He's angry. What does that reveal about him? He's far away. He's actually lost. He's dead himself. Why? Because it's not like he he's, may not answer that question the same way. I am what I, what I have. Maybe he says the answer to that question, I am what I do. I perform for you. How dare you? And he, he kind of always saw himself as kind of that insider looking out, Right? But now, all of a sudden, he's the outsider looking in. Story, the, the script is flipped on him. <laughs> he's the outsider looking in. One of the, I mean, the best example I can give of this is I play, played baseball growing up. I uh, was really proud that I had made the all-star team, you know, almost every year as a, as a kid. My dad was my manager. And I got to my seventh grade year. It was kind of a, almost my last year in Little League. And, uh, and my dad, as was my manager again, he came to me and he said, David, I'm not going to put you on the all-star team this year. I said, what? No, I'm going to give it to your teammate, Justin. Justin, what? And actually, all the coaches in the league 
were trying to get my dad to put me on the team. They actually tried to vote me in, and my dad said, no, (laughs) I'm putting Justin in. And I felt so mad. How could my dad do this to me? Like, I'd been, I'd been, I'd grown up in this league. Justin, he, this was his first year playing. I kind of felt like I was on the out, like I'd been on the inside looking out. Now I was on the outside looking in, and my dad was a part of that. Oh my goodness. I was so angry. I deserved this. I've been in this league for t- almost 10 years now. I've made the all star team. I was, on a, I was on a team that went almost to the state championship the year before. And now I'm on the outside looking in. Hmm. See, I can relate to that. Can you relate to the elder brother? Because proximity-wise, I'm like that observer. I'm like right there. I'm like usually kind of right there, and I'm working hard, and I'm just expecting kind of that, you know, those rewards. Maybe that's you. It's a lot of us in the church. We kind of measure ourselves by the proximity that we have with the church. But instead, what do, when we have resentment, when we have contempt, when we have bitterness, when we have envy, when we have self-righteousness, that all shows that we actually maybe are further away from God than we thought. He believes that God views us based on performance. That's how he thinks that when God sees you, he, he sees him, he, he believes that the Father sees him is based on his performance. But look at verse 25. And following, actually this is uh, not verse 25, says that he entreated him. But when he was angry, in verse 28, he refused to go in. The father came out and entreated him. That means he implored him. He was like, look, he reminded him. The same thing, you're my son. You're my beloved child. This is how this works. You aren't what you do. You're my beloved child. He tries to remind him of that. And we don't really know how this story ends. <laughs> because the, he's talking to the Pharisees, remember? He's talking to the Pharisees and he's pointing to the elder son and saying, Pharisees, how are you going to respond to this? You think you've been located with God's people all along and you really, really are far away. I want to close with this story. Uh, the story of uh, the brothers Karamazov, which is by uh, Dostoevsky. Um, it's a long read. I would not advise you read the whole thing, but I'm going to kind of take a little sliver out of it. Uh, there's a story about these other two brothers, a younger brother and an older brother in the brothers Karamazov. And there's this, there's this particular part called the Grand Inquisitor in this, in the, in this uh, story with the brothers Karamazov. One of the brothers, Ivan, is trying, he's the older brother, he's trying to undermine the younger brother's Christian faith. So Ivan comes to him, and he's like trying to undermine him and trying to attack him for what he believes in. And so the younger brother tells him a story called the Grand Inquisitor. And the story goes like this. He imagines that Jesus shows up in Spain during the 16th century. He just appears in Spain in the 16th century. And everybody recognizes Jesus. And so because they recognize, Jesus, they recognize Jesus in Spain in the 16th century, they immediately go to him. And these crowds begin to surround him. And even there's a funeral procession. And this woman who has just lost her seven-year-old child asks Jesus, would you please raise him from the dead? And Jesus raises him from the dead. But there's this old man, this religious leader 
in the city who sees this whole thing happen, and he doesn't like it. So the religious leader goes and he captures Jesus and he arrests him and he begins to interrogate him. And he says, how dare you come and inter- interfere with, with the established religious order, the way things operate? How dare you do that? Jesus remains silent. He says, you know what? The first time you came, you did it all wrong. You did it wrong. You should have come and you should have, those three temptations you had, you should have taken those. You should have gone for power. If you went for power, then we would have universal peace. But now you're here, you're, you're disrupting the way we're doing things. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> How the Pharisees operated? I want to read to you, the, and I'm going to close with this. This is the last part of, this is what happens. The Inquisitor. When the Inquisitor fell silent, he waited for some time for his prisoner, Jesus, to reply. His silence weighed on him. He had seen how the captive listened to him all the while and intently and calmly, looking him straight in the eye. Jesus looking, and apparently not wishing to contradict anything. The old man would have liked him to say something, even something bitter, terrible. But suddenly he approaches, Jesus approaches the old man, the religious leader in silence, and gently kisses him on his bloodless 90-year-old lips. That is the whole answer. The old man shudders. Something stirs at the corners of his mouth. He walks to the door, opens it, and says to him, Go and do not come again. Do not come at all. Never, never. And he lets him out into the dark squares of the city. The prisoner, Jesus, goes away. And the old man, the kiss burns in his heart. That's what we're left. Friends, I pray that the kiss of Christ, the kiss of the Father, would burn in your heart, that you would know that Jesus loves you. He loves you. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that your love would burn in our hearts, that we would truly experience you, where we find resentment, where we are wayward, and all of the places that we locate ourselves outside, apart from you, you call us to come home, to be with you, to be your beloved child. I pray that we would know that kiss, that embrace. Lord, would you be with us? Would you help us to experience your love? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come now to a time in our service where we're going to take up the offering. This is a time uh, when uh, we believe God has been good to us and we are seeking to live out.